If copyright infringements didn't exist, I might be tempted to start this episode off with Aretha Franklin's You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman. So let's all come together and just praise God that copyright infringements do exist and I am not going to defy them. Hey everyone, my name is Ray Burns and I want to equip Christians to think biblically about every area of their lives so that they can keep growing in spiritual maturity. And in this episode, I want us to take a biblical look at what it is that human beings are made out of. The current plan is for this to be a four-part series where we will look at the four kind of main beliefs out there within Christianity about what it is that we are made of. Uh, This is often called the constitution of man. In other words, what are we composed of? What are we comprised of? Are we really bodies and souls? Is there a difference between our soul and our spirit? Are we just physical bodies, just purely naturalistic? Or is there maybe kind of a fourth option, you know, maybe a a secret recipe out there that maybe some of us haven't thought of? And so what the series will be then is just looking biblically at what people have believed over time, what people are saying today, and trying to give an honest examination of the the pros and the cons of those beliefs. Uh, If you remember several months ago, I had a series on where we get our souls from. And in that, I kind of started with what may have been the least biblically supported beliefs and where our souls come from, and then moved to what I believed was the most biblically supported. And so this series is going to be a similar thing. I want to, to be fair to all the views on these, but I want to look at not just how they believe that this works, but also some pitfalls that we might see or some issues that we need to be made aware of with any of these four belief systems. And so in terms of what I believe has the least biblical support to the most, we're going to start with talking about human beings just being natural bodies with no supernatural or spiritual element to them and looking at that from a biblical perspective Then moving on to human beings being made of three parts, body, soul, and spirit. And that is probably the most popular one. So I hope you'll stick around with it and not be offended that it ranks number uh, three, I guess, in terms of being most biblically supported. After that, we'll talk about human beings being made of two distinct parts, bodies and souls. And then for the final episode, I'm going to introduce a understanding of the human constitution that is not very popular. It's not very well known, but I do believe that this makes the most sense in the context of how the Bible from Genesis to Revelation discusses human beings. So be excited for that one, I hope. But for just today's episode, like I said, we're just going to be talking about the humans being purely made of a body and nothing else. And now when you hear that, for most people who probably listen to this podcast, you're probably thinking, well, obviously that one's wrong. I mean, how the Bible is clear that we aren't just natural. And so we might think that if someone believes that human beings are only natural creatures, that they are just kind of giving in to naturalism, which is kind of the most prominently seen in atheism, um, but the worldview that says that. The, the universe is only physical. So human beings are only physical. There's no room for God. There's no room for angels or demons or anything like that because everything can be touched. It can be examined under a microscope. And so 
That is one way of seeing that humans are just natural beings with only a body and, and, you know, brain synapses give us our thoughts and things like that. And there's no spiritual component to us whatsoever. However, we can actually, from a biblical perspective, look and see some support that might suggest that human beings are indeed only physical creatures. Now, where this second way of looking at it comes from is an idea called monism. Uh, you know, think of the term mono, one, singular. Um, but what monism would say is that the world isn't just physical. There is a spiritual realm out there. You know, there is God, God is spirit, angels are spiritual beings. And so this belief would say that, yes, God obviously has to exist. The Bible's clear about that. But in terms of human beings, we are purely natural creatures, just like everything else that is physical is only physical. They would say that human beings fall into that and that we aren't some kind of unique creation that is somehow physical and spiritual component. Now, with that, you might still be saying, okay, but there's no way the Bible can support that. But one thing we know from history is that beliefs don't stick around if the Bible can't somehow support what's being said. And so what I want to do is just look at a few evidences that someone who believes in monism might offer to try to prove that human beings really are only physical. Now, the first evidence that I want to look at is that the word soul in the Bible isn't a spiritual thing. Now, as we've talked about when we talk about biblical interpretation, it's important for us to be very careful that when we are seeing a word in the Bible, that we are letting the Bible itself define it for us instead of applying our own understandings of what a word means and then saying, oh, well, the Bible teaches this because this is what I believe this word means. So specifically speaking, when we see soul in the Bible, and especially in the Old Testament, we are tempted to think, oh, soul is this spiritual component that makes a person maybe what they really are. It's the seat of their emotions. It's it's that part that will depart and go to heaven. It's our eternalness. It's that thing in us that will live forever, either in heaven or hell. So that so when we read soul in the Old Testament, that is the understanding that we're bringing into it. But under a monistic interpretation, they would actually look at the original word that the interpreters are are translating into the word soul and say, well, actually, this might not mean just exactly what we think it means. So when we see the word soul in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word is nephesh. And this occurs over 600 times in the Old Testament alone. And this is the word that will often, but not always, be translated as soul. And so we think when we think about how words are translated in terms of biblical interpretation, we think of it like simple words, like from translating a word from Spanish to English, there's a one-to-one. -one. If I wanted to say dog in Spanish, I would say perro. If I wanted to say cat, I would say gato. And so it's this very easy one-to-one -one thing. But there are some words in all languages that carry a much more robust meaning to them. And in this case, we can make the argument that nephesh is one of those words that's not just a direct one-to-one -one translation that we can easily do. Because when translators are sitting down with their, uh, you know, their Hebrew, their Greek, their Aramaic, and they're trying to turn it into, in our case, 
an English translation, they have to make some very serious and very important decisions by looking at, okay, what does this word mean? How would this author have used this word? So in this case, Moses, how would Moses have used this word? And what should we translate it to in an English word that is carries the closest meaning to what the author intended? And so specifically, when we are looking at the word soul in the Bible, we can see, you know, a lot of us, our minds may instantly go to the creation of Adam. And so in Genesis 2, 7, and I'm going to use the King James version of this because this is where it's most popularly known from. It says, and the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed in his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. And so here we're seeing that man is composed of two things. He has matter, right? The the dust of the ground. He is a material being and he has breath. Now we're tempted to say, oh, this is where God breathed Adam's soul into him. But that's not what it says. It, It says that he took this, this physical creature and God breathed life into it in the same way that we might think of a, an EMT breathing life into someone who had, uh, you know, been pulled out of a swimming pool or something and wasn't breathing. You know, that breath of life is literally putting breath into them so that their lungs can make them live. And when we see it that way, then when it talks about man becoming a living soul, this actually makes more sense because we today think of souls as just spiritual, But here it says that this living soul is made of physical and breath. He's made of dust and he's made of the breath of life. And from there he becomes a living soul. So that should actually give us pause and say, hang on, Adam, we know was a physical being. It says right here. So why is it calling him a living soul? And when we start poking deeper into this word nephesh, we can actually see that this word has, has been used elsewhere, but not as a immaterial spiritual soul. So if we dial it back a chapter and we go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 20, we will see this word nephesh again, but translated in a way that is not soul, but something else. So it says, and God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living nephesh, of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So if you were to, um, you know, grab an app or a a book or something, and it had the Hebrew, and you could look at the Hebrew word here where it says, let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures. What this is saying actually is let it, let the water swarm with swarms of living nephesh, of living souls. And if you keep reading, you'll see this same word used in Genesis 121 and uh, verse 24 and verse 30. It's talking about all these things that have life to them. But we don't just see this in the creation account. It's seen um, even later in Genesis chapter 9, verse 4, where it says, You shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And what this would say is that you shall not eat flesh with its nephesh, its soul, its livingness. And so here, the evidence that we can see is that when when we see the word soul in the Old Testament, it's actually a decision to translate it in one way or another. But this word that we would apply to Adam being a living soul is actually applied to really anything that has a heartbeat. So in that way, you know, we'll see later translations would translate 
um, Adam's creation as Adam becoming a living being or a living creature. And that is actually much more accurate to how the Old Testament uses nephesh. So evidence number one would simply be that when the Bible talks about a soul in the Old Testament, the translators actually made a, a purposeful and conscious decision Believing that they were being accurate, I mean, let's not assign any kind of malice to them in being, you know, people saved by the blood of Jesus Christ trying to understand what an author meant. But we do need to realize that, you know, saying that, oh, well, you know, human beings have souls because God gave Adam breath of life and he became a soul. Well, that doesn't actually line up with what this word originally meant. Now, if you'd like to see an even more in-depth and thorough understanding of this with some beautiful artwork. I will actually link um, a video down in the show notes. It's by The Bible Project. And I don't always agree with what they say, but their um, production quality is top-notch. And they actually have a video where my understanding is that they would believe that we are natural beings. And they actually have a video that really nicely explains this whole nefesh thing. So if you want to kind of get a better understanding of it, you can check down in the show notes. But Evidence number two that human beings are just natural creatures is that the the modern understanding of soul, you know, we talked about previously, when we think of soul, we, we already imply a meaning to it. But the idea of a soul is actually not something biblical, but it's something that is actually a heresy that we borrowed from another religion in, from the Greeks, and we kind of put our own spin on it. Now, this, this religion or this worldview was called Gnosticism. Now, I've covered Gnosticism at length in several episodes. I don't really want to retread old ground. But simply put, Gnosticism is this idea that the world is locked in this battle of good versus evil. The good is all things spiritual and the evil is all things physical. And so the ultimate goal of Gnosticism is to be set free from our physical constraints and our physical desires and pursuits and instead only enjoy the spiritual things of the world. And this is something that if you read the New Testament, you'll actually see when the, the uh, New Testament writers are battling against uh, problems in the church, a lot of times they'll talk about, uh, you know, the physical, you know, when uh, Paul is defending Christ's uh, humanity, his physicalness, that's what he's talking about. When there's a mention in the Gospels about Christ's body, that's because they are combating this idea that, you know, Christ had to be a, a spiritual being because physical is evil and bad. And so all that to say that when we think of the soul, what monism would say is that we are actually adopting this pagan Greek belief system, because, you know, as as people who believed in Gnosticism were being saved, they were bringing in their old worldviews, just like we today know that when we're first saved, we don't unlock all knowledge and wisdom. We have a lot of our old misguided and worldly beliefs that God has to slowly chip away at. And so what we would say, though, is that the human soul, the, the existence of a spiritual component to man is actually something that we borrowed from Gnosticism. It's something that got brought in from outside the Bible. And so this modern day belief that we have today, even this idea that, you know, today we are in the world and we have these bodies that are suffering, but we have these souls inside of us and they're just waiting to be set free. And, and one day, you know, these earthly bodies will die and we'll spend an eternity in heaven. 
I'll be honest, is actually not in the Bible. There is nothing in the Bible that says that heaven is this eternal place where our souls will forever be. And so monism would come in and say the reason that people believe that is because Gnosticism says that we are physical creatures with an imperfect and sinful body that is, you know, kind of tainting our spirits. But one day we're just looking forward to being set free from this evil physical realm so that we can enjoy the perfection and sinlessness of the spiritual realm. And that, you know, as we read the book of Revelation, and if you remember the uh, my previous two episodes, we talked about the Antichrist and the Mark of the Beast, and we saw that the eventual end of everything, as we see in the end of Revelation, is that Christ will return and he will have his earthly kingdom here on earth. And that's why Christ isn't going to be reigning forever in heaven, is because we as human beings can't be there with him. We can't be in heaven because we are not spirit like angels. We are purely physical. And so Christ has to come to earth and set up a a physical earthly kingdom in order for us to physically be with him in his reign. And then the final argument that monism would say makes it biblical is this idea of a soul sleep. So in God's word, as you read, there will often be mentions of death as a kind of sleep. So, you know, a clear one is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6, which says, And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. In other words, it's talking about how Christ at his resurrection appeared to, in this case, he's talking about how he appeared to 500 brothers, and a lot of them are still alive as of the time of Paul's writing, but some of them have fallen asleep. Now, we know that Paul's not saying he appeared to people who are still awake, but some of them have kind of, you know, hit the snooze button and they're just, you know, they're they're catching some Z's right now. No, we know that this is Paul's code or his, you know, kind of a, maybe a poetic way of saying that these Christians are dead. They are currently no longer physically alive. But Paul refers to it as sleeping, and that should be noteworthy to us, because sleeping has a definite difference from death. Death we see as a permanent thing. Sleeping is something we see as temporary until we wake back up. And so what soul sleep ultimately is, is the belief that we as human beings don't have an afterlife necessarily. When we die, we die. But those who are in Christ will be raised up. They will be resurrected at the last day. They will they will be awakened from this sleep of theirs, and they will then live forever reigning with Jesus Christ. And so we can actually see some support for this. So if we look at something like Isaiah 38, 18, it says, For Sheol does not thank you. Death does not praise you. Those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. In other words, when people die, that's it for them. That's what this is implying. And so this would be seen as support for death being the ultimate end. Uh, We can see it again in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 5, which says, For the living know they will die, but the dead do not know anything, nor have they any longer a reward, for their memory is forgotten. So again, the implication here and, and the understanding that we can gain is that when you're dead, you don't know anything. When you're alive, you know that death is coming, but when you're dead, you can't think, you can't know anything because your life has ended. So even these Old Testament writers are speaking in a way that talks about the finality of death and that if you die, that is it. 
But we get clarity, especially in the New Testament, that we have a hope after death, but it's not some kind of spiritual eternal life, but instead the resurrection. And we can even see um, the sequence of events play out as New Testament writers are speaking. So how they would understand it is that as a human being, you will die. And the last memory or the last thought you'll have is whatever you think about with your very final moment on earth. But then immediately after that, the next thing you will know is the judgment. You'll, you'll stand before Christ in judgment. And as Christians, knowing that our names will be found in the Lamb's book of life. And we can see this confirmed in Hebrews 9.27, which says that just as it is appointed for man once to die and after that comes the judgment, monism would say that this isn't some kind of long pause where we're going to be doing something between death and the judgment, but instead our conscious understanding of reality is death and then we will all stand before Christ at the final judgment. We also see that Paul spoke in a way that confirmed this. So in Philippians 1.23, he says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Now, this isn't talking about Paul visiting heaven, but instead, his desire is to die so that he can basically fast-forward his way to the resurrection and being with Christ for eternity, because he knows that that is far better. He sees himself as someone who will basically be asleep like all these other believers who have died and fallen asleep and are currently having no conscious thoughts or experiences whatsoever. But with the bodily resurrection, we will basically feel as though no time has passed whatsoever and we will be before Christ. So in terms of support, let me just quickly sum up where we've gotten up to this point. So monism, this idea that we are only physical human beings isn't just it's not just something that people use to compromise with maybe an atheistic worldview but instead it's something that people actually believe is biblically supported they get that from saying that any mention of soul in the old testament is something that has been mistranslated and that when we read it we are applying our own understanding of a spiritual soul to it that misunderstanding of a spiritual soul comes from a greek heresy called gnosticism which believes that human beings have physical and spiritual components that are basically at war with one another in this, you know, epic good versus evil fight. And that finally, we see that this idea is supported because the biblical writers, Old and New Testament, refer to death as kind of a final thing in terms of consciousness, but that the New Testament writers, having a better understanding of the bodily resurrection, talk about death as sleeping, knowing that one day we will wake up and be before Christ. So all that being said, let's talk about why monism isn't as biblical as it may first seem. Because, you know, this belief is popular in the world. We see it in a lot of cults. We see it in places like the Jehovah's Witnesses who believe in just the physical death. So, and we can understand why, without further examination, this, this can make sense. It does work. But when it comes to maybe taking apart this belief system or trying to really think through uh, biblically and logically, why this doesn't work. The biggest issues with monism are actually going to come down to just some very flawed assumptions that we have to make for it to work. So the first assumption when it comes to how soul can be mistranslated in the Old Testament, the assumption that they make is that a weak translation is the same thing as a poor teaching. And we need to realize that just because a translation may be an error doesn't 
automatically disprove a teaching that can come out of that. Because as we've discussed, you know, biblical translation, it's, it's a long and it's a very tricky subject. There is so much that goes into biblical translation, especially the original ones where they, they did everything by hand and by physical copies. You know, and so we know that we can't just make a one-to-one translation uh, replacement when it comes to translating the Hebrew word nephesh with something that makes sense in Greek or English or whatever. And so the issue there with interpretation is that sometimes, like we saw in the King James Version, is that the translators will often have issues where they will, because of their limited means or their their technology at the time, they have to basically translate words in isolation. Uh, in the case of Adam's creation, nephesh can mean soul, and so maybe not thinking of the implications or the surrounding text or what was being said, they said, well, nephesh can be soul, so let's make it soul. And that made sense. You know, it wasn't sinful, it wasn't horrible of them. They made a decision, which at their time in their time period made sense. However, we would need to be able to apply this mistranslation to everything, meaning that any time a biblical writer said the word nephesh or referred to a soul, that it would always only make sense for living physical creatures. And we don't have that option with us. So if we look at Revelation chapter 6, verse 9 to 10, we're going to see souls referred to in a way that is talking about dead people who are not physical beings. Who It doesn't make sense for them to be living physical creatures. And so what it says is, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice. And then it talks about what they said. But the key here that I want to point out is that these are people who are clearly dead, who have not been bodily resurrected, but they're doing something. They are crying out. They are participating in things as though they were still alive, even though they're dead. And so what we understand here most clearly is that these are the souls, the spiritual parts of a dead martyr, people who had been killed for the gospel, and they are crying out for justice. We can see this again in Matthew 16, 26. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Again, our love of the world can come at the expense of our eternal destiny. It doesn't make sense to say, what's it going to profit a man to gain the whole world but die? Or what will a man give in return for his physical life? You know, Christ is talking about so much more than just how we live our lives, but instead about our eternal destinies. And we can see Christ again talking about soul being more than just a physical thing or our life. Um, in Matthew ten twenty eight, it says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, again, if we're going to say that soul is a mistranslation and it should be, you know, living being or life, then what we would have to say is that Christ is saying, Don't fear those who can kill the body and kill the body but instead fear him who can destroy both the body and the body. It, it just it doesn't make sense, logically speaking, that we can say, oh, well, this was mistranslated and we don't have spiritual souls. No, Christ is saying that people can hurt us physically, but it's only God who has the power to, to affect our souls. So again, all this to say that the assumption that a word being translated poorly somewhere doesn't mean that it's been translated poorly everywhere. Now, number two assumption that we need to be careful of 
is that when it comes to saying, oh, well, you know, this teaching of the, the, the spiritual soul is just this Greek Hellenistic thing that we got from Gnosticism. We need to realize that what they're assuming is that because something is similar, that means that's where we got it from. Now, I will grant, I will fully admit, and this is something that I would love to talk more about, Christianity is still impacted by Gnosticism and how we think of our body and soul as kind of opposing parts to ourselves, or we think of the world as locked in this weird good versus evil thing. That is all from Gnosticism, and Christianity is still heavily impacted by that, and it's very unfortunate. But just because the Christian teaching of body and soul is similar to what the Greeks believe does not mean that we got it from them. Because as Christians, we get our belief about the soul from the Bible and not ancient Greek philosophy. We can point to scripture, as we'll do over the next few episodes, to see why we believe that human beings have some kind of spiritual component to them. And again, you know, if we just think logically about how history progresses, if the world was created by God and God created Adam and Eve who knew God and then on and on, you know, the beliefs and understandings about life was passed on to future generations. It's going to make sense that there are going to be things in various religions that are going to line up with Christianity. And because again, why would they not? They come from people who understood God, who taught their children what they knew about God, about humanity. And so it shouldn't surprise us when religions come along, whether it's you know ancient Eastern religions or even more modern religions, and they have similarities to Christianity because everything spawned from a God of truth. They just get, you know, that truth just gets corrupted over time. Now, finally, an answer to this idea that, well, the Bible talks about people sleeping, and that means that they are sleeping— we need to realize that the Bible is not a textbook. And when we assume that because the Bible says a thing, we need to take it as literally as we possibly can, regardless of anything else, we're going to run into very serious problems. Because, for example, the Bible says that the earth has four corners, and it says that it has a canopy and a lot of other things that support a flat earth. If you read the Song of Solomon and I'll, I'll put a link to it, or actually, if you read the original article that's linked down in the show notes, um, I, I link in there a picture of the wife in Song of Solomon. And if you take what is said about her and say, oh, well, because it says it in the Bible, this was true, Solomon's wife looks like she was made by Dr. Frankenstein. It is a terrifying picture of how she looks. Um, likewise, today, as we understand how the universe works, we know scientifically that we live in a heliocentric universe, meaning that everything rotates around the sun. But if you read things like Psalm 113, verse 3, or Luke chapter 1, verse 78, it speaks about things as though the earth is the center of the universe because it talks about the sun rising. Because we know that we can look, and it looks like the sun rises over Earth, but we know based on you know Earth's rotation and things like that why it appears that the sun is rising, but really the sun is just coming visible as our ball spins and makes it not hidden by the other side of the Earth. And so we see with things like that, when we think about the Bible and try to just hyper-literalize it, meaning that whatever the Bible says, we take that as fact— 
regardless of understanding things like the genre, you know, like Song of Solomon is poetry. So he's speaking about his wife in this very poetic sense. When we don't think about things just like turns of phrase, you know, how we today even still knowing that the earth is not the center of the universe, we still talk about the beautiful sunrise. But that language would imply that the everything rotates around the earth. If we would grant that same leeway to people today where we say, I know what you're saying, but I also know what you mean when you say it. You know, because we know that, you know, people wouldn't literally die without coffee for the most part, for most people who, who love their coffee. They would not literally die without their coffee or their Netflix or their phone. We know that when someone says they got lost in a book, that they were not sucked in like some kind of Chronicles of Narnia thing and transported to a world they couldn't escape from. We know they didn't fall in to the spine of the book and couldn't find their way out. We know what someone means when they say they are lost in a book. Likewise, we need to grant that same understanding of language to the biblical writers as well, because we need to know when they are speaking of truth and we need to take it literally based on the genre of the book that's written, based on how a phrase is being used. We need to understand when they are being literal and when they are being poetic, when they are using slang or you know common phrases of that day to say something that has a deeper truth that we can understand when we get beyond the surface of the words being said and get to the meaning behind it. And so understanding that, when the Bible talks about people sleeping, we should ask ourselves, why is the writer saying it? Are they clearly contradicting any other teachings that we see both before and later that talks about people having an, a consciousness after death but before the resurrection? Because we see throughout the Bible, I mean, we saw in Revelation, we see the story of the rich man and Lazarus. We see that there is an existence after death that is not physical, but is some kind of spiritual existence. So if we're going to say that soul sleep is real, then we have to answer how that is contradicting other things. Or do we need to grant that biblical writers are using things like sleep to imply something about the hope that we have, that we know that death itself is not final, that the grave does not get the final victory, that through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that we believers have an eternal hope, that death is just a pause, not a conclusion, that we will be in an intermediary state of some kind. We will not be physically present in our bodies forever, but that that's not how things will always be. You know, and we see this hope when we think of it that way all throughout the Bible. When Christ was talking to the thief on the cross, he said, today you will be with me in paradise. We see that in Luke 23, 43. We see that Christ himself refers to himself as both physical and spiritual. In Luke 23, 46, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And so on and on we see that, you know, if we just take the verses on soul sleep, completely isolated. We can make an argument for it. But when we try to say, does this belief about us only being physical, does this match with everything else we see in God's word? We start to see that this belief, while maybe compelling at first, just doesn't work with the Bible as a whole and what is revealed throughout all of God's word and not just in isolated areas. So just to wrap this up, we've taken kind of a zoomed out look at the Bible and have really seen that while we can make arguments in isolation 
in general, the Bible does not support this idea that human beings are just purely physical creatures. And so, like I said, that's why I believe that monism, this idea that we are just physical, is just the weakest argument in terms of what human beings are composed of. It makes it more palatable for you know, maybe living in a more atheistic inclined environment, but in terms of sticking purely to what God's word says, monism just doesn't work. It takes a lot of assumptions and a lot of poor interpretation methods in order to support itself. And as God's people who want to love truth, that's something we're going to have a hard time justifying. So with monism out of the way, and in the next few episodes, we're going to be able to dive into much more popular beliefs So I hope you will think about what we've talked about today and look forward to the next episode. Thank you for listening to this episode of Onward in the Faith. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and visit onwardinthefaith.com where you can read hundreds of articles about every area of the Christian life. If this ministry is a blessing to you, there are three ways that you can support it. You can pray for Ray and Onward in the Faith itself. You can share this episode with others. Or you can help with various expenses by visiting patreon.com slash onwardinthefaith or following the link in the show notes. We hope this episode has encouraged you to keep moving onward in your faith towards maturity in Christ.